0: Mark chapter 5 is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 21 through 43 this morning. The story in the gospel of Mark is a gospel talking about who Jesus is, and it's proving that Jesus is truly the Messiah. The Messiah is a word in Scripture that says that he is come to redeem a people for himself. And so Mark writes about Jesus telling us all of these miracles and all of these fascinating things that Jesus had done. Jesus was like no other person that has ever walked on the face of the earth. The Israelites, who Mark would have, they would have read Mark's words, would have seen people in the past that have done miraculous things. They would have heard of stories of Noah building a, a giant boat to save his friends. They would have heard the story of Moses taking God's people out of captivity into to the promised land and parting a sea and then closing it over his enemies. They would have seen and heard of a shepherd boy who was to be the next king, who would slay a giant. They would have heard of Samson. They would have heard of the judges. They would have seen all these things. But when Jesus came on the scene, no one has seen anything like him. Jesus did the things that we see in the Old Testament all the time. In fact, we don't even have all the things recorded of what Jesus has done. But when, when he did miracles, no one had ever seen things like that as much from one person. No one had ever heard teaching the way that he taught. It says that when people heard him, they were astonished at his words. And so Jesus is, has crowds and crowds of people following him as he goes. Because people want to see what is it that Jesus is about to do next. And Jesus, what he does when he has crowds around him, he often will focus on his disciples and teach them what the kingdom of God is like. And so in Mark chapter four, he begins to teach in parables and telling them what the kingdom of God is like. And then at the very end of Mark chapter four, he then moves from teaching them to actually showing them what the kingdom of God is like. And he does that in beginning in three different ways. First, he shows them what the kingdom of God is like by showing them that he's more powerful than nature. The disciples are on a boat with Jesus and a storm comes and begins to scare the disciples and Jesus looks at the storm and tells it to hush and then the storm stops. Jesus shows his power over nature. Not only that, but Jesus is with his disciples and they're on a boat and they get to this area where they find a a man who's possessed by demons. It was it said that he was possessed by a legion, which is hundreds, possibly thousands of demons that were in this man. Didn't didn't scare Jesus at all at all. Jesus commands the legion, the demons, to to leave this man. So not only do we see Jesus' power over nature, not only but now we see Jesus' power over evil. That evil forces bow down before him because they know that he's king. And now, what we're going to see in the text in, in, in Mark chapter 5 is that Jesus is going to have power over something that is seemingly impossible. Jesus has power over death. And that's good news for us this morning. Mark chapter 5, and we'll begin in verse 21. And when he had crossed again in the boat on the other side, a great cr- crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. And then he came one of the rulers of the synagogues, Jarius, by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet. And he employed him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. And he asked Jesus, Come And lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. Jesus is confronted by death here in the story. Jesus is confronted by death, and it's good news that Jairus is gone to Jesus and asking him to heal his daughter. Death is something that we all will inevitably face. Last time I checked, the death rate is still 100% per person. Not long ago, I saw PBS put out an article that estimated that a total of 107 billion people have been born on earth, and there's about 6 billion people that are alive right now, which means that 93.5 of all people who have ever lived on this earth are now dead. Death is an inevitable thing that happens, and we can do a couple of different things with death. We can live in only in reality when it comes to death, or we can have hope when it comes to death. Only living in reality when it comes to death it means that, we just, okay, we death is going to happen, so how I'm going to live my life really doesn't matter because death is going to happen. I'm just going to eat, drink, and, and be merry, and tomorrow I'll die. Maybe some of you are trying to speed up your death. Maybe you're just eating cookout all the time like me, and you, you'll, you'll die sooner than others, right? Maybe you just, you're just going to enjoy life, however it works out, and th- this is it. This is, this is the end. Or maybe you're trying to control death. Maybe you're just trying to, you're all focused on eating healthy or exercising. But the re- reality is all of us are going to face death. Jairus' daughter is about to face death. So he could he has a choice. He could live in reality or he could face hope. And that's the second thing we could do. We could face hope. Hope that the person that we will lose or that we have lost, that we'll see them again. Hope that there is life beyond this world. How is it that we can have this kind of hope? I even hear non-Christians say hopeful statements at funerals. They'll say, oh, they're in a better place. They're no longer in pain. They're, they're looking out on us right now and they're smiling. Where does this come from? The Bible would say that it comes from this idea of hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Your faith is worthless and your sin, and you're still in your sins. The fact that Jesus has power over death is what gives us hope. And now this man, Jairus, he comes to Jesus because he wants to have hope he he's asking will you give me hope will you give me an answer will you save my daughter he's a ruler of the synagogue the text tells us he's a religious man he's a wealthy man he would have used as much as resources that he had to save his daughter he would have tried to get his daughter the best treatment that money could buy but what's happening he's going to Jesus and as a ruler of the synagogue, knowing Jesus and his reputation, Jairus is literally risking everything. He's risking his whole reputation to be and to ask of Jesus. Do, you, do we know how the, the religious leaders would have said, do we know how Jesus teaches? He teaches things that we don't agree with. He, he acts in ways that we don't like and we don't approve. And now this religious leader, a ruler of the synagogue, this wealthy man, comes to ask Jesus, risking everything. And he's risking everything because he's in a desperate time. And desperate time calls with calls for desperate measures. But look at what happens. How does Jesus respond? It says in verse 24, and he went with him and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now imagine if you're gyrus here, you're pushing, you're with the Lord Jesus, you're pushing through a crowd, you're hoping To get to your daughter who is sick, who could soon die, and you're rushing. Crowds are pressing in on Jesus. And they're rushing to get to the daughter. Aren't crowds the worst when you're in a hurry? I mean, isn't going to the mall during Christmas just demonic? Isn't it awful? This is what they're experiencing together. He's trying to get to Jesus, and it seemed like they would be in a hurry. But look at what happens. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Here's a woman that begins to see Jesus pushing through the crowd with this man who's frantic about his daughter, and she begins to try to get to Jesus. It says that she had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This meant that she had a disease that gave her menstrual irregularity. And the disease, in and of itself, would have been terrible. What would have made this disease actually worse was the fact that, to a Jew, she would have been considered ceremonially unclean. She would not be allowed into the temple, or you could use the word into the church, the place of worship, to worship the Lord. She was not allowed to do that because of her ailment. No one could touch her. No one could shake her hand. No one could hug her. Uh, Imagine what this would be like for you. If you were to come here this morning and it was a place that said, hey, we know what's going on in your life. We know how unclean you are. You're not allowed to come in here. You're not allowed to shake our hands. You're not allowed to give us a hug. You're not allowed to interact with us. You have to sit on the outside. This is how this woman would have been treated. Now, thankfully, it's not supposed to be that way when it comes to worship in the Lord's house. The church is a place where people can come and be loved and, and cared for. Let me show you why. Notice the compassion of Jesus. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus And came up behind him in the crowd. And what did she do? It says she touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. This woman had faced This incredible difficulty. Everywhere that she went, everywhere that she went, no one could help her. Everywhere that she went, no one could save her. But what happens? She touches Jesus' garment, and she's healed. And the text goes on, it says, And Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. This is a beautiful story of rede- redemption. She's going for her last resort. Jesus is in a hurry, and she touches his robe, and now she's he- healed. Here she is pressing in, risking everything, being, risking being trampled to death by the crowd, And finally, the tips of her fingers brush the train of Jesus' robe. And I love Jesus' response. He says, who touched my garments? And the disciples, they're they're hysterical here because they're like, hey, we're in a crowd. Somebody, of course, touched your garment, Jesus. Like, what are you thinking? Of course someone touched your garment. So why does Jesus ask this? Does Jesus ask this because he actually doesn't know who touched his garments? Of course he knows. So why is he asking? Well, he wants this woman to come forward. Look at verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told the whole truth. But look at what he does. He says, daughter, your fate has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This woman came to Jesus and thought that the power leaving Jesus meant that she was going to be rebuked. And what happened is she gets the opposite. What does Jesus call her? He calls her daughter. This is a sweet story because the only time, it's the only time that Jesus uses the phrase daughter on anyone. And he uses it on this woman. He's displaying the, his tenderness to this woman, which means that she's not only healed, but she's also accepted. And he's saying, you're healed, but you're also invited into my family. Perhaps you're here this morning and you need to see the tenderness of Jesus. Maybe your understanding of God is one that he is harsh. Maybe you believe that you're too unclean or you're too sinful to be loved or to have compassion, especially from your creator. And you believe that your sin is... Is too much for Jesus. Maybe you've even been to a church and where you felt like the church would be a place that would reject you or escort you out of the building if they knew what was really happening in your life. Some churches are unfortunately like that, but not churches that get the gospel. A church that understands the gospel will apply and show and display the same grace and mercy that Jesus offers. So, if this is you this morning and you see yourself in the story and somewhere you resonate with this woman, I just want to tell you that your sin is not too much for Jesus to handle. Your uncleanliness is not too much for Jesus to handle. There's nothing that can make you an outcast of Jesus' forgiveness. Not only that, there's nothing that disqualifies you from becoming, for Jesus calling you daughter or Jesus calling you son. Nothing will disqualify you from that. I want you to see the compassion of Jesus. I want you also to see in this text, there's a little gospel insight here. She is unclean and she touches Jesus' garment. Now in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, and I wish I could go there, but because of time and it's Easter Sunday, I won't. But the prophet Ezekiel talks about if someone who is unclean touches the priest's robe, the priest has to get rid of his robe because he would take on the uncleanliness. He would take on what was unclean, and he would would become unclean. This is exactly what's happening here in the text. This is a picture of that story that Jesus Christ, his garment is touched by a woman who's unclean, and he takes on her uncleanliness. You know what that is? That's the gospel. That's what Jesus did for us. Jesus, when he went to the cross... He took on our sin. He took on our uncleanliness and the wrath of God towards sin was placed on Jesus. Jesus became sin for us. Jesus became unclean for us. Why? So that we would be made clean. That's the gospel. So that we would be called sons, so that we would be called daughters, so that we would be accepted. That's good news that's good news. And this is the compassion of Jesus. Now, you have this great story. This, this great thing that unfolds, the compassion of Jesus toward this woman who's been sick for 12 years, can find no one to heal her, but we have one problem. There's still this guy, Jairus, who has a sick daughter, right? This is still happening in, in, behind us, behind the scenes. He's still trying to push through the crowd with Jesus to get to his daughter. And this woman stops him. And you're wondering, okay, Ben just took a giant rabbit trail here. No, I didn't. Jesus took the rabbit trail. All right, I'm just staying in the text. This is just what happens. But notice what what takes place as Jesus is showing this compassion to this woman who's been sick for 12 years. What takes place? Verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house. Some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So Jesus is a doctor. He seems pretty terrible. Because what had just happened would would have been a medical malpractice. There's something that doctors practice called triage, meaning that in an emergency situation, you have to prioritize the situation that is most critical. And so what's more critical here? It's that the, the woman who's been... Sick for 12 years or the girl who's just about to die? Of course it's the girl who's just about to die. What would have made sense to us would be to tell the, the woman who'd been sick for 12 years, you have to wait till tomorrow or you have to wait in an hour and then I'm going to meet this girl's knees. I'm going to try to help her not die. So if you imagine if you're Jairus Gyr- uh, and you bring your, you're asking Jesus to come and meet your daughter to heal your daughter, wouldn't you be angry Jesus, you've waited all this time trying to minister to this woman who's been sick for 12 years. She can wait another, she can wait 12 more minutes, right? She can wait at least till tomorrow. Can she, can she just wait a little bit and let you serve and care for and nurture and build up and heal my daughter? Wouldn't you be angry if you, if you were this man? You've put aside everything that would have been your reputation to ask Jesus of this favor. And he seemingly lets him down. And this is also often what Jesus does when it comes to death. He's rarely in a hurry when it comes to death. If you remember John's gospel, John tells a story in John 11 of this man named Lazarus, who is actually a friend of Jesus. Lazarus has two sisters they were also friends of Jesus, Mary and Martha. Lazarus becomes sick and Mary and Martha, they tell Jesus, hey, our brother, your friend, the guy that you love is sick. You've got to come and you've got to heal him. And what happens? Jesus is days away when he hears the news. Does he, does he come right away? No, he waits for two days to heal his friend from sickness. And then what happens? Jesus shows up four days after Lazarus has already been buried in a tomb. And what happens when Jesus gets there? La- Martha asks Jesus, or tells Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And this is so often with Jesus when it comes to death. He's not in a hurry. Why is it? Well, there's several reasons. One is that he sits outside of time. He actually created time. Time is not a factor for Jesus. Death is not a factor for Jesus. Jesus is called in the Bible, the Alpha, the Beginning, and the Omega, the End. He, he sits outside of time. And so death, Time, sickness, they're not a problem for Jesus. And this is one of the reasons why he's not in a hurry, but there's another reason that I want to see in the text. Verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear. What does he say? Only believe. He's saying only have hope. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion. What were people doing? It says, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, if Jesus doesn't see death differently than we do, how cruel does Jesus sound here? Imagine you go to a funeral at a, of a child, and someone walks over the casket and say, child looks so cute in the casket, sleeping. It's taking a sweet little nap right there, right? You would think that person is really cruel. In fact, it says that they laughed at it. They didn't laugh because they thought it was funny. They laughed because there were other, other translations say they mocked Jesus for making this statement. Why would Jesus make this statement? But what he does in verse 41 is he flips the script. He, he, makes the, he, he says these words to the little girl. It says, and they laughed at him, verse 40, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother. And those who were with him, and they went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kume, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. The word that Jesus used here is an Arabic word that actually means little girl. And the reason why it isn't translated in most of your Bibles is because there isn't really a good translation for it. It's kind of like a pet name for, that you would say to a child. It would be like saying honey or sweetheart or if you're from the South, darling, right? It's one of those words. And the other word he uses is somewhat he's saying get up. Arise. Kume means it's it's a kind, it's a gentle kind, somewhat playful word to say get up. It's it's when you quietly wake someone up. Is there anything worse than being loudly or violently woken up? Somebody shakes the bed, or somebody yells, or somebody crashes something. Maybe your kids cry and you wake up. For me, um, my wife will oftentimes wake me up with a thought that she has in the middle of the night, and she'll ask me. And then the favorite question is, are you asleep? I'm like, no, I'm just laying here with my mouth open, my eyes closed, breathing heavily, just for fun. This is what I wanted to do right now. And so if somebody wakes you up, not quietly, you have permission to say, hey, you're not acting like Jesus right now. This is what Jesus did when he woke people up, right? And this is exactly what Jesus did when he woke. he, He tenderly tells this girl to get up from her nap. He tells her like a loving mother would, sits on the side of the bed and grabs her hand and tells her, honey, darling, it's time to wake up. And then what happens? She gets up and she walks around the room and then when she walks around the room, it says the crowd was overcome with amazement. So what do we do with this story? Why does Mark highlight the story? What does it teach us about Jesus? Mark is showing us In this story, Jesus' response to death. And I tell you that because I don't want you to think that this this story is some way, a a way that we can trick death. Like, okay, if we wait long enough or if we pray hard enough, then we'll somehow escape death. No, we believe that death is an inevitable thing. Every person that Jesus ever rose from the grave, they ended up dying. Every person that Jesus... Healed, died. This little girl eventually died. How do we know that? Any of you know her? She died. She was healed. She was raised in the grave at 12 years old, but she eventually died. So the point of the story is not to escape physical death. The point of the story is to give us a picture of what it means to live in the light of the resurrection. This is is why Jesus wasn't in a hurry. To Jesus, resurrecting this little girl was literally waking her up from a short nap. And it's to no mistake that this is why Paul often uses the language when he says someone's dead, he says they've fallen asleep. He says it multiple times in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Thessalonians 4, I'll read it, verse 14, he says... For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have what? Fallen asleep. Those who have taking a nap. And some people will say, well, falling asleep, well, that doesn't mean that you're going to go to a certain place. It means that's it for you. You're done. You're going to fall asleep forever. You're not going to go to heaven or not going to go to hell. There's no place. And so they say, they say it's soul sleep. That's not the language that Paul's using. Paul's not using this language to say, that's it for you. He's actually using this language to say, this is resurrection language. You're going to fall asleep, but it's not going to stay that way forever. You're eventually, you're going to wake up. That's why he's saying death, physical death, It's like you falling asleep. But the difference is, and the intent, is that you would wake up, and just like this little girl, who's the first person that she would have saw? Jesus. So when you physically die, the language that Paul's using, the language that Jesus is using, you wake up, you physically die, but you wake up, and the first face you see is Jesus. And you wake up, From a short nap and this nap that you wake up from is the most refreshing nap that you've ever had and when you wake up from physical death if you're a believer in christ you will be more refreshed than you've ever been you'll be more alive than you've ever been that's the hope that we have in christ that's the hope that paul has when he says those who have fallen asleep they're going to be with christ that's what this little girl, we, we see a little glimpse of or a picture of. This is what it means to, to live and to die in, in light of the resurrection. And so the story doesn't teach us how to escape death. Rather, it tells us how the Lord overcomes death. Not only that, but it doesn't tell us how to escape pain either. Everyone in this story faced tremendous amount of pain. This little girl faced pain before she dies. Her dad faced anxiety and fear and grief and pain before he sees his daughter die. The people in the house, what were they doing when Jesus walks up? They're weeping and they're wailing loudly. Everyone in the story faced tremendous pain. But this pain was short-lived, wasn't it? Because when Jesus got there, the agony was momentary. This is what the hope that we have In the resurrection, when it comes to our pain, when it comes to our grief, when it comes to our sorrow, when it comes to our sin, because we live in a world of sin, but this is not our home. And the resurrection gives us that hope. This is why when Paul and Peter, when they write about this world, they call pain and suffering a momentary affliction, Why use that word? Would you ever say that to someone who's suffering? Hey, this is just a momentary affliction. I've never been to the hospital as a pastor and said, I'm sorry you're going through this. It's momentary. Let's pray. But this is the language that's used in the Bible. Like Paul, like 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison for we... Uh, look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are, are what? Eternal. Man, we go through a momentary affliction. Why? Because we want to see Christ again. Uh, Peter, he says it to a, a suffering group of believers who are, who are homeless and destitute, who are facing persecution every single day. You know what he says to him, First Peter 5.10? He says, after you suffered for a little while... And he's not even saying, oh, a little while, that means your suffering is going to go, be, go away soon. A little while, he's actually saying your whole life. How do you face a whole life of suffering? He says, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's saying it's a momentary affliction. This is why James says, your life is like a vapor. It's here for a while, and it's gone. And what happens in life? Pain, suffering. Because we live in a world of sin. And we endure that because we have hope. We have hope that Jesus Christ has power over death. That's the hope we have. This is why followers of Jesus in the Bible call it a momentary affliction. It's preparing us for something more. This is why C.S. Lewis asked the question, does not the fact that we yearn for eternity point to the fact that we were created for eternity? In, in the same vein, he, he uses his analogy of a of fish. He says a fish doesn't hate water. A, a fish loves water because it lives there. But when, it, when does it start to complain? When you pull it out of water. It begins to flap. It begins to tell you, hey, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And so in the same story, he says, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. That's what the resurrection tells us, friends. You weren't made for this world. Physical death is inevitable. Pain is inevitable. And the reason why is because you weren't made for this world. You're in a short, you'll have, you'll have a short nap. And all the things that happen before that nap, he says, it's a momentary affliction. Because we live in a world of sin, death, pain are inevitable. But because Jesus has power over, over death, we have something that no one else can have, and that's called hope. Physical death is a short nap. Pain is a momentary affliction. And when we finally close our eyes and breathe our last breath, we wake up, face-to-face with the Lord Jesus. And that is our hope. And what gives us this hope is that over 2,000 years ago, Jesus faced pain for us and faced death for us. And by doing so, he absorbed the wrath of God for our sin. His body was bruised and it was crushed. His garments took on our blood and our uncleanliness And he took those sins to the grave. But the Bible tells us that three days later, the stone rolls away. And that just like this little girl stood up, began to breathe, began to walk, began to speak, our Lord Jesus did the same thing. And just like the response that people saw when a little girl, they said they wondered in amazement. The disciples, when they saw Jesus, they were amazed. They could not believe it was him. And Jesus began to meet and be with his disciples for 40 days until he ascended to heaven to be with his father. This is the power of Jesus over death. Jesus conquers death, and that gives us hope. And so here's the implications for us today. If you can remember the story that I mentioned about Lazarus, similar stories. Both times Jesus takes a person who is dead and makes him alive. And both times, Jesus takes his sweet time, and you wonder why is it that Jesus takes his time. And as Martha sees Jesus, she asks, why, why, "Why weren't? Why didn't you come sooner? My brother wouldn't have died if you hadn't. Come, if you had come sooner, he wouldn't have died." But I love Jesus's response here. Jesus' response is our hope this morning. John 11, verse 25, he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall, what church? Live. And whoever, and and, and anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And I love what he asked Martha because it's the question I want to ask you today. Do you believe this? And if you believe this, this morning, this is the hope that you have. That one day you'll die, and it will be like a short nap, and you'll wake up, and you'll be more alive than you've ever ever felt in your life. You have no more pain, you have no more sorrow, you have no more sin, and you'll be face to face with the Lord Jesus. That's the hope that you have today. And Jesus told Martha, you can have that hope because I conquered the grave and I rose and conquered spit Satan, sin, and death on your behalf. And so this morning, my question is, do you believe this? And if you believe this, this is the hope that you have in Christ. Let us pray and let's thank him this morning. God, we are, and all of you today,